It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the Lords voted to delay the government's Rwanda bill because of concerns about human rights. But in the past few moments, we've discovered Rishi Sunak is now under attack from senior members of the Tory party. Stay tuned, we'll tell you who it is. The Israel Defence Force says 24 soldiers have been killed in Gaza in one day. Prime Minister Netanyahu vows, though, to push on with Israel's offensive until it has absolute victory. And in an independent republic exclusive, the clash between the pianist and the Chinese tourist rumbles on. The piano, apparently donated by Elton John, has now been cordoned off by high security in St Pancras Station. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Well, we promised you fireworks, and you certainly got them. Last night's exclusive story about the Battle of St Pancras is still reverberating around the world, and what a song and dance it has caused. The war of words and music between London YouTube and Brendan Kavanagh and a group of official Chinese tourists has hit the stratosphere, and we've got the latest on the diplomatic incident. First up, here's what the British Transport Police had to say. They've requested that the video where they've approached gets deleted and not used on your channel. No, they don't. Because there's money being made and they work for our company, then their faces can't be shown on the Well, they should be. And you're not their private security agent. I'm not their private security agent. And we're in a free country, we're in a free space, we're not causing trouble. The problem is not from us, Kerry. The problem is they are coming over, telling us what to do, and playing the piano. Now, fair is fair that you are not their private security guard. We're not in China. And that's not racist, that's the truth. That's what our forefathers thought. Exactly, but you can't say things like that either. You can't just say things like that. Say what? That we're in a free country? No, that we're not in China. You just can't say it. Stay tuned for more on the story they all wanted, but don't shoot me. I'm only the piano player. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Get ready for a big one. Well, we're going to start talking about the House of Lords and Rwanda because, of course, a lot of entitled peers have landed the first blow in the battle to sink Rishi Sunak's Rwanda plan. The Lords voted to back a motion that would delay and even foil deportations. However, we've learnt in the past few moments that the Prime Minister is now under attack from senior figures within his party. So Downing Street right now is bracing itself for what looks likely to be a pretty long night perhaps, of the long knives. Joining me now to discuss this, Sun's Deputy Political Editor, Brian Saby, journalist and broadcaster, Emma Wolfe, and commentator and former Tory advisor, Leon Emerali. Well, I couldn't have picked a better panel, really, could I? Um, 
This story um, is reverberating around Westminster, Ryan. Tell us what you can tell us about what you know. It seems like one senior Tory ex-Cabinet Minister, Simon Clark, is likely to come out very shortly, actually, mm. and say there needs to be a new Prime Minister. He's wow. saying that Rishi Sunak should no longer be uh, be, at number, be in number 10. Mm. Uh, Simon Clark was uh, a big supporter of Liz Truss. Um, he's a fully paid-up member, and he's been picking holes in, in, in Rishi Sunak and his leadership for a long time. But right. the fact that someone has actually come out and said this during an election year, just a few months out from an election, um, is tantamount to how much disquiet there is in the Conservative Party. And one of the reasons is they're so far behind yeah. in, the, in those opinion polls. When you're polling 20, 25 percent... And it's getting worse. Every week it's a new low, isn't it? Exactly. And there's problems. The Rwanda, Rwanda scheme hasn't got off. Um, the economy's, you know, t- you know, f- faltering Iffy. or teetering. It's, it's not, you know, it's not on going gangbusters. Mm. So, um, you know, there are there's a lot of disquiet. And you yeah. can see why he's done it. I'm just glad to see that the politicians have finally worked out that my show has moved from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. because the show always used to start with a breaking story at 10 o'clock in the morning because something would always happen. People kept resigning during my show. Emma, I mean. It is surprising that they've waited this long, um, but Simon Clark is a part of this new movement which has been started by Liz Truss called PopCon. I don't know if you've heard about this. They're launching it on February the 6th. I actually happened to, uh, to see Liz Truss quite recently and she was very excited about it, telling me this is a new um, part of the Conservative Party taking back the Conservative movement, effectively, saying that basically the Tory party's been taken over by a load of wet sort of one-nation types. So we'll have six families rather than five families. I presume so, yeah. Or Or maybe they're coagulating two of the families or four of the families. I'm sure they'll mop up, yeah. Well, one wonders if there's a new leader, would they call a general election immediately? Would they wait? Would they drag on? I mean, this whole whole thing is just descending from sort of farce into absolute... Mania. Right. Well, I mean, it was started. I mean, tonight um, um, it was your um, colleague Harry Cole that sort of slipped out and uh, uh, the word that something was afoot. Uh, quick, quickly followed by Nadine Dorries retweeting it, saying, "Here we go." Ah, this is you the know. plot that so, I wrote about. You know, I mean, it is there is this kind of psychodrama, Leon, that they seem to be creating for themselves with every day. It's not as if there's not enough going on. I mean, we're supposed to be talking about uh, the Red Sea and the, the missiles being fired on the Houthis. We're supposed to be talking about Rwanda and whether the Lords is doing the right thing. Instead, they've got another kind of psychodrama on their hands. They have, and it's the same old Tories, really, isn't it? Not much has changed. No. But I think that what number 10 are going to be looking at is whether or not Simon Clark has got the backing of other Conservatives who will now come out and gather some momentum behind this anti-Rishi movement. But the question still remains, if not Rishi, then who? Yeah. And I think there is still a question mark about who the person would be to lead the Conservatives into the next general election. And if we do get to a point where the momentum is against Rishi Sunak, perhaps he could pull a general election uh, quicker than we thought and go to the country and say, well, actually, I'm going to be Prime Minister. Yeah. I'll let the country have their say. So That never goes well, does it? Let the country decide. The country usually goes the other way, doesn't it? Yeah, normally. And I think it's going to be very difficult for Rishi Sunak in particular to make that vision, make the case for his vision for the yeah. country and to be given more time. Right. And would anyone want to take over this poison chalice at this point when well, they are lagging so calamitously yeah. far behind? Yeah. I mean, the Tories I speak to at the moment are pretty much, you know, confined to those who think they're just going into oblivion for a while and they're hoping to come out of it, you know, with something to show for themselves and maybe in a few years' time Labour will have screwed it up to such an extent that they'll walk back in. Yeah, I, but I, don't, I haven't met any Tories that think they've got a dog's chance in hell. No, they, they, all, they, they think the game's up. The only people who do think they've got half a chance is 
those serving in in, in number ten. Yeah, and, and that's and that's that's. This is sort of bunker mentality time. That, yeah, it's set in, and and you realise that the closer you get to that election, it's just gonna, it's just mm. going to get worse and worse. But do you want to have someone like Rishi Sunak, who's going to keep you in the game, maybe in in five years' time? Do you want a fighting chance in five mm. years, or do you just want to blow up the whole party? Lose, you know, you know, be left with a rump of 150. Well, I think that's Liz Truss's plan. I mean, I think she genuinely believes that the Tory party and maybe the system needs some kind of a, a, a kind of explosion it's or a like revolution. The Italian, is it the Italian job? Let's blow the bloody doors off. Yeah, it's just. Well, like, you're only yeah. supposed to blow the bloody doors off, and then yeah, they completely wreck the whole van. <laughs> I mean, that was the problem. <laughs> you know, they used a bit too much jelly lights. I knew you'd you know that line. Yeah, and yeah, it's <laughs> just an incredible ever. situation because. This government seems to be completely stalled. There's quite a lot of important stuff going on. You know, there's the Israeli situation still. Uh, Russia's still happening. You've got a new president coming in America. You know, you've got, uh, you know, Ukraine the Red still going on. Well, yeah, I mean... Well, Rishi Sunak be you know, furious about this. He's, you know, had a phone call with President Biden last, yeah. last night trying to look... Do you, you think know, Biden remembers it? No, oh, good point. <laughs> trying to look like, look like he's that sort of leader on the, on the world stage. He was out in Ukraine the other week, delivering yes. two and a half billion with a financial aid yeah. to, to, to He's Ukraine. been making some quite strong noises on behalf of Israel as well, yeah. saying that, you know, there could be no peace without the hostages all being released and Hamas being removed, yeah. basically. And well, his, his statement in, in Parliament today was quite interesting. We saw a different tone from Rishi Sunak. Gone was the children's TV presenter, and here was this sort of statesman, as Ryan says, trying to look as if he's the guy on the world stage yeah. standing up for British interests. So he's definitely got a plan... I'm just not convinced that the country are going to be convinced by it because it's not authentic. I don't think that's who he is. Well, he says he's got a plan and he says that Labour don't have a plan. But, I mean, there's plans and there's plans, isn't there? I mean, it's all very well having a plan, but if the plan doesn't work... Well, he keeps, saying, point, stick, he keeps saying stick with the plan yeah. as though, A, we know what the plan is and B, it's working. Well, it's not. And what I mean, is this it? Country, do you know what it is? Well, no. No, I don't. And, and I do know that the doctors are still, you know, not, none of that has been resolved. We've no. got an NHS that's falling apart, the mm. seams. We've got ongoing rail strikes and across yes. the public sector. We've got you know, despair, and we've got immigration problems, education problems, yeah. problems everywhere. Well, and potholes. Yeah, and potholes. I mean, just to add insult to injury. And local councils all going belly up. In fact, some people saying that local councils may never be the same again. They may not survive this particular and financial And students route. suing their teachers about, you know, prayer bans. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just the whole system. It is incredible. Yeah, he's, uh, he's flapping, he's, he's got his, his five pledges, and he's, he's flapping, you know, over those. Yeah. Inflation one, okay, you know, give, give him, you know, a, a tick against that. But every time he's just getting distracted, whether yeah. it's, you know, globally well, he's managed or it's to take the Tory party, which unfairly, I think, was castigated when uh, this trust was in and Kwasi Kwarteng was in. I think that all happened far too quickly. Maybe there wasn't enough thought given to what they wanted to do, but I think they were given no time at all to do it. But we're actually worse off now, aren't we, yeah. than we were then? Definitely we are worse off. And I think the other big problem for the Conservatives is we're worse off after 13 years. And I think that's the big problem. If you're the incumbent party, you've been running the country for 13 years, you should have a record you're trying to defend and you're trying to say, let us have have more years so we can continue and get the job done. But they can't really do that. So they're trying to... Well, Richard Sunak trying to position himself as the change candidate. That didn't work. Now he's the continuity candidate. (laughs) That isn't working. That's a good point. I've completely forgotten about the change candidate stuff because you do, don't you? It lasted about five minutes. Yeah, and I think the problem. And change. Yeah, and I think one <laughs> of the problems for Richie Sunak is that Simon Clark, you know, as Leon said, he may have a small, you know, body of MPs behind him, and he may stumble into a leadership vote, mm. no confidence vote, 
Neil win that. He will win that. There will be enough Tory yeah. MPs who will back him. Would he be a sort they, of Trojan they, it's, horse? It's, it's totally, you're totally wounded. Yeah. It's like, it's well, Andrew Jenkins told me last night on this show that they, she reckons there's about 29 letters that have already gone in to um, to Graham, what's his face? The, Graham Brady. Uh, Graham Brady, the head of the 1922 committee. I don't know if that number is something you're uh, able to confirm or you're familiar with. Only what uh, Andrea Ledson yeah. uh, mentioned it, and obviously right. you say Andrea Jenkins has mentioned. The only person who really knows it is is, is Graham Brady. Because but they don't need many, do they? No, you need 54, 55. Yeah. Right. So you know they couldn't be. Far, they might not be far away. Well, from I mean, I reckon that of the of the popcorn lot, there's about a hundred of them. So, I mean, if half of them decide to put letters in... It's like a comforting blanket when we start discussing the letters again. Yes. We start totting up yeah. figures and we get back <laughs> to that. I remember this time yeah. last year, I'm sure we were doing letters I mean, then. luckily, the good news is they're not being delivered by the post office or else they'd probably... No, well, exactly. Not Saturday. Should we talk about the House of Lords? House of Lords last night. I mean, again, it seems to me to be a ridiculous charade and a kind of a parody of, of you know, reality to even bother. Because everybody knows that even if the bill goes through, it doesn't make any difference... Nobody in the country cares. Nobody in the country believes it will work. So they're all now fighting even more over nothing. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the policy that they would create some safeguards. Safeguards need to be in place before yeah. the government can actually enact this Rwanda plan. But it's only a-, a motion in the House of Lords. The government will listen to it. They'll respond to it in some way. But it, it won't really affect uh, you know, the policy going ahead if, right. if, if a plane ever does get off the ground. No, exactly. And Lord Goldsmith, we discovered today, uh, the man who doesn't think that Rwanda's a safe country and wants to make sure that it's very safe before he sends anybody there, um, it turns out he's been in receipt of quite a lot of money um, from Azerbaijan, which apparently is also not a very safe country, but that doesn't seem to have upset him at all. I was going to say, it's the best part of, you know, Three hundred thousand pound that, right? that he's declared, and he's you know he's declared it on the, the register of uh, interests. Yeah. But the fact is, you have it raises eyebrows. It does, and apparently he's a solicitor rather than a barrister, so he can actually turn work turn down. down. He doesn't have to take the work. This is it, and I think the House of Lords is stuffed with a lot of people who have got conflicts of interest because, mm. and rightly so, they've got careers in business. But it does then interrupt or, or, or you know become a problem for the work they're doing in the House of Lords. Yeah. But I think the bigger problem for Sunak and Number Ten, they have put all of their eggs in a Rwanda-shaped basket. And let's be honest, it probably isn't going to work. So they haven't got a plan B. And I think that's what they need mm. because this illegal immigration is not going to stop because of Rwanda. We've seen that. It would have already stopped if it was going to be a deterrent. It doesn't work. Mm. So even if they do get planes off the ground, I'm not convinced it's going to reduce the numbers. There's going to be nobody on And I think we're going to, we're going to be in the same situation yeah, we are now. we really are. We're going to keep an eye on the, on the, uh, the various news wires that are coming in. I'm sure, Ryan, you'll let us know if anything happens. We're going to have you guys back as well because we've got plenty to talk to you about, including Elon Musk um, going to a concentration camp today with his three-year-old uh, son, which still seemed a bit weird. Anyway, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The Prime Minister remained stum uh, on an endgame to last night's strikes on Houthi rebels. So you may be wondering if this is the beginning of the end. But first, we must break. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. British and American aid workers have been asked to leave Yemen within 30 days by the country's Houthi-controlled Ministry of Foreign Affairs after the US and UK conducted a fresh series of joint airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen last night. The Prime Minister addressed the reason for the strikes in the Commons today. We did so because we continue to see, including in intelligence, an ongoing and imminent threat from the Houthis to UK commercial and military vessels and to those of our partners in the Red Sea and wider region. And Mr Speaker, I want to be very clear. We are not seeking a confrontation. 
we urge the Houthis and those who enable them to stop these illegal and unacceptable attacks. But if necessary, the United Kingdom will not hesitate to respond again in self-defence. I'm joined now by a journalist based in Jerusalem, Gareth Brown. Gareth, very good evening to you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we're told, in addition to what's going on in the House of Commons and, and, and all of the action in the Red Sea with the Houthis, that this is the deadliest day for uh, the Israeli Defence Force since that terrible day on October 7th. Yeah, um, I mean, it was quite shocking news, I think, for Israelis last night. Um, you know, there were details sort of starting to emerge of some some major incident. And it appears that, um, you know, a group of Israeli soldiers were uh, destroying buildings about 600 metres away from the border fence. And the IDF said that they were doing this to essentially create a buffer a buffer zone between, between Gaza and uh, the Israeli settlements on the other side of, of the border. Um, and, and so they'd be preparing these buildings for, for demolition. And whilst they were doing that, they were attacked. Yes. Um, by a Hamas fighter, the two buildings collapsed and um, 21 Israeli soldiers were killed. And from the IDF's perspective, certainly a devastating day in this, you know, three and a half month conflict. Right. And is the belief that it was some kind of mine or was it some kind of IED or was it a, an attack by, by a group of Hamas soldiers? I, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems that, you know, the, the buildings have been packed with explosives in preparation. You know, this was a planned demolition yeah. by the Israeli army, by the Israeli military. Um, but they hadn't finished setting setting it up. And, and you know, so they were caught in the middle of setting up this planned demolition um, by a Hamas fighter. And, and, you know, all of their minds went up and the buildings collapsed. And, you know, a really, a really, you know, brutal evening for the idea. Yes. And there have been a lot of diplomatic manoeuvrings going on around and about the last week or so. People trying to persuade Benjamin Netanyahu to do something. But an, an Israeli um, offer was made today, we understand, um, for a two-month ceasefire, uh, as long as all the hostages were released. But Hamas, I believe, turned it down. Yeah, I think there's an interesting way to look at it. Um, you know, what we have seen is, uh, at the moment, one of the good things is that the, the, two, the two sides are talking. Um, and, you know, the last hostage we released that we had in November, that that ultimately came as a result of, of dialogue between Israel and Hamas, obviously mediated by Qatar. So the fact that two sides have been talking now, uh, Israel has made this offer, which, you know, would have entailed the, the release of the Israeli hostages being held captive by Hamas, you know, over this period of two months. But it wouldn't have ended the war. And I think that's quite important from from Netanyahu's perspective, from Israel's perspective. And Hamas have rejected that. But Hamas have um, Hamas are saying that they have you know issued a counter offer, so we can see this as a sort of game of diplomatic ping pong. Mm. There are offers going back and forth, you know, every couple of days. What we what we can see is that the the, the gap is narrowing. Um, it does seem we're getting closer to it to some sort of agreement that both sides might be able to agree to. But frankly, from Hamas's point of view, I think the non-starter in this particular deal, the reason they rejected it was after these two months. The war would have resumed. Israel could have resumed its, um, you know, military activities in Gaza. Um, and, and I guess from their point of view, that was just a non-starter. But, you know, I think we're going to see in the coming days and, and weeks more offers um, and, and hopefully we'll sort of edge closer to an agreement that, that can maybe end the war somehow. Absolutely right. Gareth, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Gareth Brown reporting into us from Jerusalem. I'd like to bring in a former head of counterterrorism uh, next right here at the Ministry of Defence, Major General Chip Chapman. Chip, very good evening to you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Um, 
you'll know a little bit about the uh, the terrain and, and possibly the, the the threat that they faced um, in that explosion, the IDF that we're talking about, uh, where 20 or more IDF soldiers were killed. I mean, I'm surprised, I suppose, in a way, Chip, that we haven't seen more of this kind of activity going on um, inside Gaza, which clearly is very well fortified by Hamas. Well, I think what would have surprised me, Mike, is that it happened so close to the border. So it was only 600 metres from Israeli territory. So that shows you the complexity of the problem, that if you think you've cleared ground, which then the enemy can re-infiltrate, and this seems to have been two RPGs, uh, rocket-propelled devices, one which hit a tank, and that may have led to a second uh, RPG on the building, which ignited these explosives. So it's this re-infiltration. You can sort of win the war and you can destroy lots of Hamas, and I think the number at the moment they're saying is 9,000. But it's the war after the war with the potential insurgency which comes, which is the real dilemma for the Israelis, particularly when everyone potentially could be a guerrilla in the the future. I've actually been to to Gaza, and uh, it is very dense terrain, which is very difficult, and urban operations are the most complex operation, not only the urban operation, but it's a subterranean urban world which Hamas have uh, built over the last few years. So it's a real complex problem, which will take them or would take them a long uh, time to sort out. And from their perspective, both uh, Hamas and Israel, they see this as an existential war. Mm. So sometimes we have to be careful that our framing bias is not that of a Western power saying, surely they'll negotiate and they'll negotiate soon. That may not be the case when you've got two sides which are pretty energized because of the events which have happened both on October the 7th and which have happened subsequently Mm. on the end of October with the Israeli actions in Gaza. Well, quite. And neither one of those sides wants a two-state solution. So as many uh, politicians that want to suggest it, it's all very well, but neither one of them actually wants to get there. So I suspect that won't be the the, the solution for what they want to do either. Let's talk about uh, Rishi Sunak today in the House of Commons talking about the Houthis. Um, You know, a lot of people tell me that there's nothing really that the Britons or the American forces can do to stop the Houthis because they've kind of already won the war in the Red Sea because an awful lot of ships commercially are not going there anymore. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, What the action is supposed to do is to deter and get them to desist. And I think uh, the international community is actually largely on the side of that being the case. This is vital interest, not just for the UK, but for every trading state around the world. So the first piece of evidence for that is um, United Nations Security Council Resolution 2722, which told the Houthis to cease their campaign, and the Security Council there, 11 voted for, and China and Russia abstained. They didn't vote against it. China is against the actions of the Houthis because it impacts their economy. You can see that in the way that the uh, spot rates of the containers have gone up, for example, and the 20-foot equivalent unit, the TEU, is the price of a freight uh, truck to go, or freight, 40-foot freight truck to go across on a container. The rates for that have gone up, the spot rate for each one, from $1,400 prior to the uh, Houthi action starting in November to 3777 now. And the, um, the complexity of the international economy means that if things get delayed, then that affects not just UK the EU, but it really affects China more. The second largest trading partner is the EU. Mm. All the EU trade to China goes through 
um, through the Suez Canal, or, or normally should go through the Suez Canal. It's also worth saying the EU have to, uh, on the 16th of Ju uh, January have looked at a, a defensive operation to escort vehicles, uh, something based on a thing which is already kind of there uh, called Op At Atalanta, and that will take some time to get into fruition should it come to bear and that might be a kind of halfway solution because in this, you've got to remember at the start, uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian was just a defensive operation. In baseball terms, it was the catch, but sometimes you're not always going to be successful in the catch. Mm. And sometimes in baseball, you've got to pitch. That's what the UK and the Americans did with the first action on the 11th of January. And then the subsequent action by the UK today was the eighth action. It's also worth saying, though, that why did the Brits not uh, get involved in the sort of actions two to seven which occurred? And that's the difference in targeting. The UK, with its capability based in Cyprus, can only get involved in deliberate targeting, what we really call a sort of air tossing in order to take on uh, targets. What the Americans do, because their capability is far, far in excess of the UK, is also do dynamic targeting. So that means via their satellite power and their persistent surveillance, because they've got a large drone presence in Djibouti, opposite the sort of Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, they can see in real time uh, the uh, launches almost being readied, and that's the uh, ones that they've taken out between Operation 1 and Operation 8. And would you say, um, Chip, that the, the, the region itself is under so much pressure at the moment because, you know, an awful lot of security experts are telling me, you know, it's not just the Houthis in the Red Sea, it's not just Gaza, it's not just Iran, um, it's not just Lebanon, it's not just Syria. You know, there's activity going on all the time. I mean, we saw um, Iran firing some missiles at Pakistan the other day. You know, it does seem to be a sense that the whole region is kind of a tinderbox at the moment. That's true, but I would always say that really since the Arab Spring, we've been looking at sort of six armies and six wars. The six armies which have been created by Iran are the Hamas, um, Hezbollah, Houthi, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq, the Liwa Fatamayun, which is a Afghan militia, Shia militia, which has been fighting for them mm. in Syria, and another militia called the Liwa Zanabiyab, a Pakistani uh, Shia, which has been fighting for Iran to keep Assad in, uh, in power. And the six really wars that you've had since 2011, the Shia versus Sunni, Assad versus the rebels, Turks versus the Kurds, because the Turks also whacked some uh, PKK a couple of weeks ago, uh, Iran versus um, Israel, Israel versus Hamas and Hezbollah, and everyone versus IS. And I haven't even mentioned Al-Qaeda within that mix. So I don't think it's a war of scale in the way that we look at uh, uh, Ukraine but there certainly are a number of incidents. So I'm not one of these who goes towards, we're heading towards World War Three. And one thing about Iran is they're not mad mullahs. Um, they've also got their own internal problems and they would not want to confront the Americans because of those internal uh, problems. The first one is uh, women life freedom, the protest movement, which has gone on there. They can't mobilize their people in the way that they could, for example, between the 1980-88 war between Iran mm -hmm. And Iran. Uh, the second one is a large proportion of, Shia, uh, of Sunni uh, people in the Middle East hate the Shia and see the uh, Iranians as a, a Persian imperialism. Certainly, there are uh, rejectionist groups in um, in Syria which would which would say that. And thirdly, the attacks that you saw on the border with the Pakistan 
um, the Pakistan assault into uh, Iran and actually the uh, attack by ISK in Khorasan province, one of the eastern provinces, show you that there are also centri uh, centrifugal forces in Iran where there are um, ethnic tensions in their periphery which could break apart if they were to go in the war. And there's a number of those, Kazakhstan, Kurdistan, Baluchistan. So Iran don't have it all their own way in sort of this. They can use their proxies very well, but it's a significant problem which confronts them as well as everyone else. They'll fight to the last Houthi. They won't fight to the first Iranian. No, interesting stuff. Chip, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. You're watching the one and only independent republic of Mike Graham. After the Lords voted to delay the Rwanda bill, there's yet another blow for Rishi as he comes under attack from his own party. MP Tobias Elwood will be here to discuss all of that next. The government plans to ignore the will of the House of Lords and plough ahead with its Rwanda deportation policy. Last night, Piers backed an unprecedented move to seek a delay in signing a treaty with the African nation. But things have taken a little bit of a turn uh, since all that happened. And tonight, Simon Clark is obviously actually asking for Rishi Sunak to resign. I'm joined now by Conservative MP Tobias Elwood. Um, Tobias, obviously, before we actually thought we were going to be talking to you, uh, we were going to start off with Rwanda, but I think we've now got to start off with Simon Clark. Clearly, writing in the Telegraph, we understand. We haven't seen all of it, but he says this. We have a clear choice. Stick with Rishi Sunak, take the inevitable electoral consequences and give the left a blank cheque to change Britain as they <coughs> see fit. Or we can change leader and give our country and party a fighting chance. What do you make of it? I mean, this is ridiculous. I think so many parliamentarians, party members, and indeed the nation will be shocked uh, to listen to Simon Clark and what he is saying. We just had a briefing last week by Isaac Levido, the uh, pollster guru now working in number 10, that showed uh, that there is everything to play for. 25% of the polls uh, show that people haven't made up their mind yet. All the difference, therefore, for us to show unity, to move forward. Statecraft has returned to number 10 under Rishi Sunak. We've managed to get that difficult Rwanda bill uh, through. Let's press forward. Let's you know, show some discipline. Let's, uh, I think, exhibit the fact that we want to take this election seriously. I hope very quickly um, the, the parliamentarians, my colleagues, will line up uh, to dismiss what Simon is doing, which I, I'm finding very, very sad indeed. And it perhaps underlines um, the uh, absence of uh, the focus of where some colleagues on the right of the party wish to take the party at the moment. If we're going to have a debate about where the party goes on the flip side of an election, so be it. But right now, there should be one mission alone, and that's to win the next general election. But what is the mission that Rishi Sunak is fighting for, though? Because, you know, he talks about Rwanda and stopping the boats. Um, he asked the Lords not to interfere, which was probably a step too far for a lot of people because the Lords have got the right to do whatever due diligence they wish to do. But they've now taken a step back and said, well, we're going to kick it into the long grass for a couple of months. So, again, you're not going to really have any kind of decision on Rwanda until possibly you come back after Easter. So I mean, that's a long time in a year when you're supposed to be having an election, isn't it? Uh, you're right. Uh, there's no doubt about it that we've got uh, the, a difficult challenge ahead to get uh, this bill through, but we're persevering. And what was supposed to be a difficult week ended up uh, going in the right direction for the government. But you ask yourself, you know, where are we going? 
fiscal discipline has returned to number 10. We're now showing that inflation is coming down. We're proving that as well. We've got a March budget coming up with, I'm, I'm sure, some exciting policies that are going to be in Britain's interests. That's what we should be rallying for, is continuing uh, this uh, return of rekindling statecraft into number 10. And that comes with discipline. It absolutely comes with discipline. We need to demonstrate to the British people that we're serious about continuing as a Conservative government. And if we don't do that, firstly, we hog the headlines and therefore people don't even understand what Labour stands for. But we then gift the election to uh, our opposition uh, without them doing any work at all. That cannot be right. And it certainly isn't something that, as I say, fellow parliamentarians will be uh, wanting to, to pursue. I, I suspect there'll be very little support for Simon Clark, you know, regardless of the individual policies that he may be wishing to pursue. Well, he's associated, is he not, with PopCon, which is launching itself uh, on the great British public sometime at the beginning of February. And he's going to be one of the, we are told, 100 or so Tory MPs who want to take back the Tory party from the people who have betrayed it. There's people who are no longer Conservatives and they would probably accuse you of being one of them. Well, the, the trouble is, if you remove people like me from the Conservative Party, then you move it more to the right and we lose that broad church appeal, which is absolutely required to win the general election. You've studied these polls, you've seen so many elections. The sweet spot in British politics and the electorate is that middle ground. And Tony Blair, who looked like the Tory, demonstrated that he could then hog the middle ground and he'll win. When uh, parties go to their extremes, such as Jeremy Corbyn, no chance of winning the, uh, that general election. When we go to our extreme, no chance. The big hitters, the big beasts that have done so well in our party's history are the ones that have gone for that centre-right ground, but taking the base with them. Absolutely important that you don't forget you know, your ideology, what you stand for, but ultimately you appeal to the, uh, you know, the general electorate. And we won't do that if we go to our extreme. But one of the things that, that you might have referred to as extreme back in the day of 2019, I remember it well, um, was Boris Johnson's win in December of 2019, one of the biggest wins the Tory party had had over Jeremy Corbyn, based very much on what you would call something more than centre-right, which was to leave the European Union. And, you know, that was a big victory. And you might have said at that point that that was what the right of the party wanted, not what your side of the party wanted. No, I wouldn't agree with that analysis. It's what the nation voted for, whether it be Labour or Conservatives, that was the majority support. And I absolutely respect that. My concern, if you want to go down this, this rabbit hole, which is difficult for any party and indeed the country, is what have we done to take advantage of Brexit? Have we got the best economic relationship with our biggest trading partner? And I think most people, if they're honest, would answer, no, we haven't. We could do much, much better than the deal we've currently got. I work particularly closely with the uh, defence uh, aerospace companies um, based across uh, Britain that uh, build these international, um, uh, you know, run these international procurement projects, finding it very difficult to do business on the continent and indeed elsewhere because of the economic limitations that are entwined in our Brexit deal. We could do much better than this, but there's no impetus to do so. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, there's a big problem. Uh, there's still a war going on in Ukraine. Uh, there's all sorts of trouble in Iran, uh, in the neighbouring uh, states of Syria, uh, of Afghanistan, still of Pakistan. Um, Rishi Sunak says that Britain will continue to fire missiles at the, um, the Houthis, but the Houthis seem to think that they can just continue to do what they want. What do you say? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, where does the Houthis get their uh, military uh, equipment from? It's from Iran. It is limited in stocks, but they're high caliber. And it wasn't all going to be done in one sortie uh, overnight on the 11th of January. It will take a number of missions, not least because uh, we're continuing to gather intelligence. And that's why there was a further strike a couple uh, nights ago. When the Houthis stop hitting uh, ships, international shipping in the Red Sea, uh, then that mission will uh, temporarily close down, I'm sure. But it's absolutely right that Britain steps forward as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council to join with our allies and protect international shipping. I make it very clear, and I'm sure you understand this, that uh, if we don't, who does step forward? Who will then take advantage of the void uh, in uh, uh, patrolling our international waters? And the consequence to the British taxpayer and indeed to the economy here is that it'll hit inflation because our gas comes from Qatar. And if it has to reroute around Africa, that will cost, uh, the, you know, the prices of, of uh, uh, energy will go up in the UK, affecting the, all Brit British citizens and British families. Yeah, I understand that. But we'll have to talk about it some more, Tobias, because we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. There's so much to do and so much going on. Uh, coming up, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, the National Health Disservice, or better known as the NHS, has finally suspended Jihadi GP and pro-Hamas demo leader Dr Abdul Wahid. And an Aussie lifeguard happened upon a get-rich-quick scheme floating in the waters off Bondi Beach. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. If you thought the waterways here in Britain were dirty, take a look at this off the coast of Australia. Video has emerged of a lifeguard finding what appears to be a brick of cocaine off of Sydney's Bondi Beach. So I've just been up between their heads. I've just found this little package of... Looks like cocaine. So we're just about to hand that over to the police. Probably 100,000, 200,000 bucks in that little package there. Just around the corner of Bondi. So Zoe, you're going to miss out on your Christmas present. Yeah, I don't know how he knows it's cocaine unless he's picked up a lot of these bricks. And I don't know how he knows how much it costs or how much it's worth either. But the same thing's happening in Britain. You can get those uh, boxes of cocaine floating about in the sea off the coast of Sussex and Kent. But moving swiftly on, it's now time for Taking the Mic. Now, every now and then here at the Independent Republic, we get something to cheer about. And tonight, I'm particularly proud to bring you some very good news indeed. Thanks to my colleague Piers Morgan at Talk TV, an NHS doctor who also operates as the UK head of a banned terrorist organisation called Hizbut Tahrir, has been suspended from his job as a GP working in North London. Abdul Wahid has been practising as a doctor for more than 20 years, and he was attached to a GP direct practice in Harrow since 2002. But he appeared on Piers Morgan's Uncensored show last year and revealed his true beliefs about the Hamas terrorist attacks on October the 7th. He consistently refused to condemn the brutal murders, denying that they had indiscriminately slaughtered more than 1,400 civilians, and he labelled them a resistance organisation. At one point, he even doubted that the killings and atrocities had ever happened. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, he said. Naturally, Piers gave him short shrift, but there was a public outcry that an Islamic extremist with such views could be allowed to continue to work as a doctor in the NHS. On another occasion, he told a baying crowd at a pro-Palestine rally outside the Egyptian embassy, victory is coming and everyone has to choose a side. 
Whose side are you going to be on? He also welcomed Hamas, giving Israel a very welcome punch on the nose. Well, speaking as someone who's seen what happened on that terrible day, I would not call beheadings, burnings, rape or torture as anything like a punch on the nose. This man is abhorrent and he has no business being anywhere near the NHS, never mind Jewish patients, who would be forgiven for wondering what treatment he was actually meeting out to them. Abdul Wahid is also known as Dr. Wahid Asif Shaida. You'd have to wonder why he needs two names and what else he's been up to. While everyone on the Independent Republic should rightfully praise the NHS for removing him from his place of work, there is nothing to stop him working privately. And that surely must also be a concern. The General Medical Council must now do the right thing and strike him off their register for good. I'd say we should not only make it impossible for him to work, we should seize his £850,000 house and we should deport him to the nearest country that hasn't banned his butteria. And that would outlaw most of the Middle East where it is recognised as a dangerously extremist terror group. Finally, the UK prescribed it as such just this year. But here's what I want to know. How many other Dr Wahids are there in Britain, in the NHS, in the police, in our local councils and attached to community groups all over the country? Tony Blair wanted to ban them because of their perceived role in the 7-7 bombings in London. Let's root them out now before they do any more damage. Now, last night, I brought you an exclusive interview with the pianist Brendan Kavanagh, who was confronted by a group of Chinese people demanding that he didn't share videos showing their faces or voices online. But here's the catch. He was filming in a public place, playing Elton John's piano in London St Pancras train station, to be exact, which has now apparently been cordoned off, they say, for because maintenance. The police got involved as well. An officer tried to tell Brendan not to film. Have a look at this. They've requested that the video where they've approached gets deleted and not used on your channel. No, they because don't Because there's have that money way. being made and they work for a company and their face is part of the show. Well, they should be. In the, if that's, you're not their private security agent. I'm not their private okay. security agent. And we're in a free country, we're in a free space, we're not causing the trouble. The problem is not from us, Kerry. The problem is they are coming over telling us what to do and playing the piano. Now, fair is fair, but you are not their private security guard. We're not in China. And that's not racist, that's the truth. That's what our exactly, forefathers thought. Exactly, but you can't say things like that either. You can't just say things say like what? that. That we're in a free country. No, that we're not in China. Unbelievable, eh? She walked away eventually, as did the Chinese people. Brendan pointed out their hypocrisy on the show last night. They wanted complete privacy in a station where there was thousands of people and, uh, you know, that everyone's there filming and uh, they want complete privacy. They don't want anyone filming them. They don't want to be known. And they were going around waving these yellow Chinese anti-disclosure things. Right. And <laughs> they said it's an extremely sensitive issue. The guy is very, very sensitive. I mean, for goodness sake, now he's a YouTube star. Right. <laughs> Well, well, well. Um, big story still going on. The assistant editor of Spectator, Cindy Yu, joins me now. Cindy, I mean, I'm at the same time kind of amused by this story and perplexed by it. It's a very odd thing to have happened and it's a sort of quirky story to have to look at. But people became fascinated with it. People have become even more fascinated by some of the stuff on social media, um, picturing some of those Chinese people involved in other roles. One, for example, with Jeremy Hunt, Others sort of trying to identify who some of the others might have been. I mean, what's going on? 
I'll be honest, uh, Mike, I haven't seen that picture of Jeremy Hunt, um, although I have seen one of those Chinese people coming out um, and putting out a video of her version of events. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I, the whole thing, and Mike, I'm so sorry to start the interview by saying this, but the whole thing is such a nothing burger in the sense that this was a storm in a teacup about um, a public dispute about whether or not you want to be featured in someone's video. Um, and I think that as private citizens, you know, if you see a live streamer filming you, you might just go up to them and say, do you mind just not using that? I'd rather be private. And they would be well within their rights to say, no, you're in a public space. I can use that footage. Yeah. Well, I think, I that's, I think that's right. But, I mean, the trouble is it became a bigger thing than just a nothing burger because the people yeah. who were involved started talking about calling the police. They started accusing Trevor, um, Brendan rather, of being um, a racist. They started saying that he couldn't say certain things. I mean, it was a very odd thing to be happening in a London railway station. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah, totally. And I don't disagree with any of that at all, Mike. I think that it was just so stupidly escalated and the whole thing is a masterclass in how not to get someone to do what you want you know right. they they're coming over initially and you know if you watch the full videos i have 39 minutes i'll never get back in my life um, <laughs> <laughs> um they come over that that lady that we're seeing on screen now she, you know she comes over she's initially very very polite and very yeah. you know well spoken um you know there's there's some kind of language barrier there where you know brendan's trying to understand exactly what her problem is but it just gets so escalated when other people in her party um, get involved. Um, at one point, one of the men actually shouts at Brendan to don't touch uh, one of the women there, even though he wasn't really touching yeah, right. her. You know, the whole thing has got, got blown out of proportion very, very quickly. As you say, the police were called. And we've seen there just now that clip of that policewoman kind of really taking one side of the, of the row, really. Um, but I think what's interesting is that it's tapped into such a such a phenomenon, it's tapped into such an emotional place yeah. for so many viewers um, and so many people looking at this. I think because of this idea, as, as Brendan kind of suggested, that the CCP is somehow coming over here, telling us what we can or can't say in the UK, in a free country, as he calls it. And I think that is an anxiety that we in the in the liberal West, in the in democratic West, do have. And we are right to have that anxiety about things like the Confucius Institutes or Mike, you and I have talked about the spy scandals yes. in the UK. But in this instance, you know, I, I do think it's, it's some. It's just a stupid argument that got totally out of hand by people who were not very polite at the end of the day after only a few minutes. Yes. So and, yeah. I mean, who do you think they were? I mean, they said I think that they were working um, for some kind of tourist company that they were filming mm. um, basically a tourist video of some kind in London. But they were waving around these kind of disclaimer. Um, notices and uh, almost as though they could give those to people to say, you know, you can't interfere with us, we want to film here and, you know, there are things you can and cannot do or can and cannot say. I mean, I suppose the question I'm asking you is, is, is there a lot of this going on? I mean, will we uh, will we sort of, as on our travels, wander around seeing groups of, of, of people wearing the same clothes filming something? Is it, a, is, it a, is it a thing? Is it a TikTok thing? I mean, I just don't know. Yeah, I, th I think I think the the, the girl who's um, the, the polite one who's come out since to to film her own version of events said that they were doing a Chinese New Year kind of welcome video yeah. um, and that they had been employed by a company, but they had to sign um, some kind of non-disclosure thing so that nobody really knew that they were filming it. And they were worried that if Brendan's video came out, 
people wouldn't know that they're doing that. You know, all of that is understandable. And all of that is understandable. You might ask someone, please, can you edit me out? They didn't know it was a live stream. But what was not justifiable at all is just how aggressive it got very, very quickly. So so I I do agree with that. Um, The the thing that's bizarre for me about this whole situation is that China is now one of the most digitally connected places in the world. Live streaming is actually a massive industry in China because whilst not everyone has a computer, if you have a smartphone, you can tap into the hundreds of millions of users um, on Chinese social media, on all of these platforms that we've never even heard of here in the West, but are just as big as Facebook and Instagram. You know, they've got their own version of TikTok, for example. So for Chinese people, live streaming and seeing people getting their phones out, it's actually quite a normal thing to see. So for them to be so strict about you know, not, it's not understanding that someone might just be doing this and it would be totally harmless. Um, it's, I think, badly handled, basically. Yes, I mean, but I, I think, think so. there's anything political in this, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think so. Cindy, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. And of course, the piano has now been cordoned off um, by the powers that be for maintenance. That old excuse. They always say maintenance, don't they? Uh, we'll bring you more on that with the panel. You're watching The Independent Republic. After the break, we cross the Atlantic, where it's head-to-head uh, with Donald versus Nikki, and we check in on our workaholic king. Take note, Harry and Meghan. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are back and you're with Talk on TV, on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, Rishi Sunak is under attack from senior members of the Tory party after the Lords voted to delay the government's Rwanda bill. Plus, Queen Camilla tells workaholic King Charles to slow down ahead of his surgery, but palace sources insist the monarch is raring to go. Lots more going on, of course, coming up uh, in this hour. We'll be coming back to the panel. We'll be talking about swearing parrots, maybe, uh, but we'll also be talking about the latest uh, from the situation going on down at Downing Street, where Simon Clark is basically 
challenging Rishi Sunak. He's telling him he should go, and he should go now. So we'll bring you all of that, of course. Coming up as well, uh, last night we talked about democracy and what happened last night. It was also damn predictable, wasn't it? After Rishi Sunak made his rather pathetic attempt to intimidate the House of Lords into simply rubber-stamping his Rwanda bill last week, there was only ever going to be one outcome. And when he warned them not to frustrate the will of the people, the entire nation said, what will? What people? It was an open door, and you guessed it, the House of Lords, which would always have been against the bill anyway, locked the door, threw away the key, and organised their version of a sit-in. Last night, led by Labour peer Lord Goldsmith, the Lords lobbed a particularly large spanner into the works of the legislation and delayed it until Easter at best. As ever, this was the one outcome that Number 10 hadn't actually anticipated. The main tranche of Goldsmith's argument was that Rwanda really isn't a safe place to send anyone, never mind a load of refugees who have only known hotel room service and free money from us Brits. Goldsmith, of course, doesn't want to know that the United Nations has already sent plenty of refugees there, as has Libya, as has Israel, and as has Denmark. Goldsmith also appears to have never been to an Arsenal game, where Visit Rwanda is emblazoned on every one of the Gunners football shirts. He also failed to mention that as a lawyer, he's been in receipt of several hundred thousand pounds from Azerbaijan, a country said to be even more dangerous than Rwanda. The House of Lords approved delaying the ratification of the new bill by 214 votes, to 171. That means that only around half of the peers actually bothered to take part. It's the first time they voted to do something like this, though, into an international treaty since about 2010. Home Office Minister Lord Sharp of Epsom accused Labour peers of using the House of Lords to frustrate our plans to stop the boats. But with the best will in the world, nothing this government has done or proposed is going to stop the boats. Perhaps what they ought to do is propose the reform of the House of Lords. And they might just have better luck doing that. Everyone, and I include even those who work there, knows that the House of Lords is a bloated, outmoded and arcane institution filled with smug socialists, Lib Dem nobodies and obscure do-gooders with nothing much to do. The ennobling of David Cameron in order for him to become Foreign Secretary proves that there really isn't much point to the Lords these days. They're unelected, they look down on little people and they're not at all keen on anyone that's gauche enough to have voted for Brexit. Oh no. The bill is pointless, the Lords is pointless. Let's rip it all up and start again. Now, coming up later on the show, we'll bring you a first look at tomorrow's front pages, and they may well be dominated by one particular story because we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper before anybody else, and you can see that their main story is the verdict in that terrible, terrible triple killing uh, of the students in Nottingham uh, when a manslaughter plea was accepted for Valdo Callocane, uh, the man who went on the rampage and knifed Barnaby Webber and Grace O'Malley Kumar plus caretaker Ian Coates in Nottingham. The two young students, the two faces on the front cover uh, of the paper alongside uh, the triple killer who said that he wanted to uh, be found only guilty of manslaughter because of diminished responsibility. Basically, Barnaby's mother saying, I have utter rage and pure hatred for him because uh, she's lost, of course, um, her little girl. And it really is a terrible story. We'll bring you more, of course, on that uh, as we get further into this hour. Some other stories in the papers, of course, as well. Now, let's go over to the United States and have a look at what's going on in New Hampshire this evening. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are going toe-to-toe for the first time in the election. Trump holds a commanding 14-point lead over his Republican rival. However, polls show 20% of voters are still a little bit undecided 
But let's cross live now to our resident US politics expert, Mr. Joe Concha. Joe, uh, before we start, I just want to bring some breaking news to you. Apparently, President Joe Biden has been speaking at his first campaign rally in Virginia, and he was interrupted, apparently, by some protesters. Take a look at this. You can hear uh, you can hear the Biden supporters all shouting four more years, but you've obviously got people with Palestinian flags there demonstrating. Uh, they were led away uh, by security. But Joe Biden, unusual to see him actually out in public. Uh, I'd have to say, Joe. Um, I guess you've got the same problem with the Palestinian supporters that we have here. They seem to turn up pretty much everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's Palestinian flags being put up. Um, it's getting a bit boring, it has to be said. But um, what do you make of uh, of Joe Biden doing his first sort of rally today uh, around about the same time as the New Hampshire primary. It's very interesting only because it's in Virginia. Virginia mm. has gone Democratic for the last four presidential elections. So it seems that when Biden is campaigning, it has to be at a in a state that isn't too far from the White House. So last week he was in <laughs> Pennsylvania and then he was in Virginia. He actually did go to North Carolina about a week ago. But again, this is all East Coast driven in states where he doesn't really have a shot in North Carolina. Pennsylvania, yes, is important. But at some point, he's going to have to fly to a, a Wisconsin or to an Arizona or Nevada or Georgia, all these swing states where he's trailing Donald Trump by right now. Overall, the Palestinian problem is a problem for Joe Biden, only because he's been so staunch in his support for Israel that in places like Michigan, where they have a large Muslim population, he's down by 10 points to Donald Trump. If he loses Michigan to Trump, it's pretty much over. That is a must-win state for Joe Biden. And ironically, it's the left that may end up bringing him down in that particular state. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, Michigan was a key state, was it not, uh, back in 2016, um, when Hillary Clinton kind of uh, didn't bother going to that part of America and figured that she would just win it anyway. That's right. She never went to Wisconsin once because she thought she had it in the bag. Right. Michigan, she barely visited at that point because Democrats always won Michigan and right. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. They won every time since 1988. Mm. She took it for granted and it cost her. Yeah, absolutely. Donald Trump goes up to New Hampshire today um, against uh, Nikki Haley. I mean, it's a quirky state, isn't it, New Hampshire? They've got a lot of students up there. They've got, uh, I think, mm. the ability for people who are non-Republicans to vote in the Republican primary. What are you, what are you expecting uh, to be the result tonight? I think if we remember uh, the old Mike Tyson fights back in the 80s, yeah. uh, where you'd see a first or second round knockout, I think that's what we're going to see, as we did with Trump in Iowa. It is a quirky state, New Hampshire, yes. Democrats can come out and vote against Trump if they so choose. I don't really see a lot of that happening. Overall, the polls just show that Donald Trump is really pulling away now at this point, even in a two-way race against Nikki Haley. And as Everybody from Ted Cruz to John Kasich to Marco Rubio to Jeb Bush and now Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are finding out running against Donald Trump is a fool's errand because his supporters are so loyal, they're impossible to peel away. And it looks like we're headed towards a Joe Biden Donald Trump rematch if Joe Biden is the nominee, and there's still some question around that. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, the questions around that are coming from which side of the party? I mean, are the leftists really taking over, or, or is it the more sensible people who say, look, this guy may not have it in him. He may not be able to uh, unite the party. He may not be able to bring everybody along. So let's find somebody else. And if so, who is that person? 
Well, one scenario that we're hearing about in the states, and it, it's chatter and nothing more. I should say this is speculation, not you know hard reporting that we're we're doing here. But what you hear privately at parties and in happy hours is that Democrats will decide that Joe Biden can't beat Donald Trump this time around. That people are very uncomfortable with having an 86-year-old president in the White House who was not aging well, and that's yeah. how old Joe Biden would be at the end of a second term. So, at the convention, Democratic National Convention in Chicago, they will replace Joe Biden. Delegates will, super delegates will, not voters, uh, with one Michelle Obama, Chicago's oh. hometown gal, obviously the former first lady. Currently, according to polling, the most popular woman still in the world. So. That's one scenario, wow. but I can't see her leaving her palatial estate in Martha's Vineyard yeah. and giving up her Netflix producing and the Emmys. I don't think she wants any part of it, but that, that's one scenario that we're hearing about. That's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, only in America could, could you say that, couldn't you? Because it's a bit like without wishing to it'd be in any way disparaging. Yeah. Like the World Series is not really a series. I know it's, it's based on uh, the name of a, of a newspaper and it's not actually, but people around the rest of the world go, <laughs> how can they call it a World Series? You know, how can you call Michelle Obama the most popular woman in the world? You know, wouldn't there be, I mean, Taylor Swift might have a bit of an argument for you there. That's a great point. I, I would think Swift probably would pass her up at, at this point, given <laughs> given what we're seeing. But I never considered that World Series argument before. You're right. It's yeah. the United States series, right? right? It's a sport basically played in, you know, not England. I guess you guys played a little bit, but but not the way we do. So, yeah, I'm going to have to take this up with the Major League Baseball commissioner, who yeah. I have a direct line no, absolutely. with. Absolutely. Well, hey, well I mean, I used to ask, I, yeah, we used to ask the question all the time, and it turns out that it was, it was based around a, 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 a newspaper that was called The World, um, which was based, I think, in the old days in New York, and so that's what they called it after. Oh, wow. But, you know, um, Michelle Obama, that would really be a left-field appointment, though, wouldn't it? Oh, it absolutely would. But we also hear names like Gavin Newsom, who's the current yeah. governor of California. Doesn't have a great record to run on there, considering that more people are leaving his state than any other state in the country for a reason. We hear about Gretchen Whitmer. She's the governor of Michigan, how she could step in. But this is all predicated on the fact that Joe Biden will just go along with all this. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to get the keys away from grandpa when, it's, when he shows <laughs> that he can't drive anymore. Uh, he doesn't give those keys up very easily. And I could see Biden saying, hey, look, I beat this guy last yeah. time. I won by 7 million votes. Why don't you think I can do that again? Right. So, uh, again, a lot of things have to happen here. I think at the end, though, if we just look at this logically, it's Trump versus Biden. And Trump has the upper hand right now because he's on the right side of all the issues when it comes to economy and energy and trade and education. The border is a big problem here, as you've been reporting. Right. And then, obviously, foreign policy. The world seems like it's on fire because it basically is. Well, it really is, yeah. And you don't want to look behind the curtain just in case there's another sort of missile coming your way. But, I mean, what about yeah. uh, the vice presidential candidates? Because would you assume, and would I assume that Kamala Harris is still going to be Biden's vice presidential candidate if he decides, that, or if everybody decides to let him run? And who do you think Trump's going to favour? Well, having Kamala Harris in the ticket, when you have Joe Biden at age 81, a heartbeat away from the presidency, not a lot of Americans can see Kamala Harris as the commander in chief and leader of this country. So that is definitely a net negative than positive. Uh, the problem is if you remove uh, the first woman of color who's vice president, that can really alienate uh, black voters, uh, minority voters who may say, wait, you're, you're replacing Kamala Harris for what reason? Probably just to try to earn more votes somewhere. So that would probably be a net negative by removing her as well. So they're stuck with Kamala. As far as Donald Trump and who he'll decide on, I I'm leaning towards Tim Scott right now, who is a uh, senator from South Carolina, uh, the first uh, black senator uh, from the South. 
Uh, obviously a very optimistic guy. He ran for president. It didn't go well, but everybody likes Tim Scott. And even Democrats have a problem uh, criticizing him. So I can see him going in that direction or Kristi Noem, uh, who is a popular governor here as well. But either way, people don't elect vice presidents, right? They, they elect presidents. In the end, the choice will become down to Donald Trump versus Joe Biden and where people want the country to go. And even though Donald Trump has 91 felony counts against him, that only seems to be helping him yes. as far as voters here because they see our political system and our justice system System is being weaponized at this yes. point. And that will be the next date to look ahead to, I suppose, will it not? The Supreme Court ruling on whether or not Donald Trump is an ineligible um, candidate in certain states of the US, like Colorado, where they've tried to basically row him out on the grounds that he was involved in some kind of insurrection, judged by them. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, Donald Trump's never been charged with insurrection, right? So the whole premise of taking him off the ballot in Colorado and in Maine uh, has no legal merit, it would seem, if you speak to serious legal analysts here in the United States and elsewhere. So when you try to start removing somebody from a ballot or put them in prison before an election, I think it only galvanizes those who are sane and sober and they say, wait a minute, this isn't how this should be decided. Let voters decide at the ballot box if Donald Trump should be president or if Joe Biden should be president, but it shouldn't come down to a judge and jury, or it shouldn't come down to not even being able to vote for him in a place like Colorado or Maine. The whole thing is rancid, and it's not being received well by the American public. The partisans love it, right? The liberals are like, oh, great, let's put Trump in jail. But I think the independents, the people that decide elections ultimately in the middle, they don't like this one bit. No, exactly right. And what's the country's mood at the moment, Joe, on what is going on around the world? The Middle East, as you say, uh, pretty much on fire. You know, we've got uh, uh, the Houthis uh, aiming at ships in the, in the Red Sea, the US and the UK cooperating to try and put a stop to that. But obviously, Obviously, um, you've got Netanyahu um, under pressure from the likes of Joe Biden and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to try and do some kind of a deal with Hamas. He doesn't want to do it. Um, is, is there still no real appetite for military conflict in the US? Well, certainly not, because we see, for instance, uh, what's going on in Ukraine. In Ukraine and Russia, we're coming up now on the two-year, if you want to call it, anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. And now they're at a stalemate. You don't really hear much about what's going on over there because the Ukrainians can't push the Russians out and the Russians can't get towards major cities like Kyiv. They're stuck right. on the Eastern Front. So meanwhile, Americans see more than $100 billion being fed to what has always been a corrupt country in Ukraine. And there's no there's no real accountability as to for, right. as far as where this money is going. They spend so between it fast, that, don't they, as well? I mean, they get rid of that money do. pretty damn quick. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and then we lost two U.S. Navy SEALs uh, just this week uh, in the Red Sea. And as you said, the Houthis are just, it's target practice against U.S. ships at this point. So nothing feels stable. And that's another Trump argument, by the way. From right. 2017 to 2021, uh, we weren't at war anywhere. There was stability in the world. North Korea was tamed. ISIS was destroyed. Yeah. So that's another uh, feather in the cap of Donald Trump as far as contrasting his record against Joe Biden, where it's been basically perpetual war since he's come into office. Yeah. So, I mean, after today, what's the next sort of big landmark in the in the Republican primaries? I mean, do you think that if Vicky Haley doesn't do well, she'll just throw the towel in and give up? Uh, yes, I, I absolutely believe that. I think if she doesn't win, if she's not within eight, ten points, then there really is no path for her going forward. Some people will point to South Carolina. That's Nikki Haley's home state. She was a two-term two -term governor there and say, well, maybe she should wait around for that until you look at polls in South Carolina that shows Donald Trump up anywhere from 30 to 40 points. So there just doesn't seem to be a road ahead for Haley 
And DeSantis was, was Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was smart to drop out because he was about to be smoked in New Hampshire. So if Nikki Haley is blown out here tonight and Trump wins decisively, you don't see any path for her going forward. And she should save her political capital because there's always 2028. She's still a relatively young woman, mm. uh, still could win the presidency. Just when you run against Donald Trump, as something like 30 people have found out that have run against him, it doesn't go well. No, he is literally a juggernaut and you just got to get out of the way, I guess. Joe Concha, thank yeah. you very much indeed. Good to talk to you uh, all the way from New York City there uh, and uh, the United States of America, the New Hampshire primaries, of course. Uh, we'll bring you all the latest news on that throughout uh, the course of the day tomorrow uh, as after the uh, the results come in tonight. It'll be on talk today in the morning uh, with Jeremy Carl. In the wake, of course, of King Charles' recent health scare, the Queen's told the monarch he's being worked to the throne and he needs to slow down, working too hard. But the king has already vowed to keep up his busy schedule when he's ready to return after his corrective procedure for an enlarged prostate. Joining me now, live from the US of A, is the host of the To Die For Daily podcast, the one and only Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, very nice to see you. How are you? You're, you're sticking to the States, I see. Uh, well, absolutely right, you know, because uh, it's, all, well, it's all happening in lots of other parts of the world at the moment. Rishi Sunak's facing another bid uh, to, to be ousted, but that's just, you know, an everyday occurrence here at the, uh, at the state of the Downing Street uh, problem at the moment. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the king, because the king's going in uh, for some surgery a little bit later on this week. And uh, apparently he's a workaholic and they want him to slow down, but he doesn't want to. That's right. This is advice, pretty sound advice coming from Queen Camilla, asking the king to perhaps slow down. We heard reports immediately when the king let us know that he was going in to have this surgery, that he was going to continue to receive those beautiful red boxes. He was going to, from, from his recovery bed, that he planned to continue to work as much as he could throughout his recuperation. And I, I think, you know, the, Queen Camilla is just saying, hey, take a you know, allow yourself to fully heal so that you can be back and better than ever. However, this is a man that waited 73 years for this job. And Mike, I think he legitimately enjoys his job. So I, you know, while I think it's great advice, I, I wonder if he's actually going to take it because I think he wakes up every day raring to go. He's a busy guy. He, you know, he's always up moving and, and up to something. So I think he'd have a hard time just laying in bed, sleeping it off. I think we're going to continue to see him stay busy in the recovery process. Well, also, I think if you had a, a, a royal family who basically said, look, we're all a little bit ill at the moment and we can't really do very much, I think people would start asking questions about, well, what are they for? You know, well, they're not doing very much of anything. They're just resting and recuperating. And as much as people don't want to see them overworking themselves, surely um, they have to be seen, um, you know, to kind of be believed, if you like. Well, there are even rumors that the Princess of Wales has started taking on some some emails and, and some some business in from her uh, recovery bed as well, because I do believe they fear that type of feedback and that type of criticism. Mm. Um, but I would say I do hope that they both rest and recover because we enjoy seeing them out and about. And it's it, the queen. I read in um, Robert Hardman's new book that when the queen was mentoring King Charles about becoming the future monarch, she talked about how being visible 
was so important and being trustworthy. Yes. And, you know, we, I think we're seeing that here. The king wants to make, the king wants to be visible. The king um, wants to make sure everyone knows that he's still on top of things, especially when politically it might feel like there's a bit of chaos in the air. Right. Well, this is the thing. And I mean, you look at um, what happened to Harry and Meghan over in the US, you know, as soon as they left the royal family, they kind of became irrelevant. I mean, you and I have been tracking them for quite a long time now. But look at where they've ended up. You know, Harry ends up going to this kind of rather ridiculous ceremony to be, you know, you know given an award for being an aviation legend. Nobody can quite understand why. But he ends up getting photographed with this kind of dodgy German prince who kind of has made, made Harry now look even more ridiculous by accident. Well, you are who you associate with. So <laughs> if you're taking pictures with fake royals, it, it, you know, and you've, you've stepped down, you might look a little bit like a fake royal. And this guy's also, um, this fake prince was also, first of all, he claims he's a prince because he was adopted when he was 23 years old. Like, get a life. Like, right. what a joke. But he's also, um, you know, he hawks things on TV, uh, you know, like miracle serums and, and really tacky things like that. I think that obviously Harry and Meghan Starr has fallen, and I do think it's because of their work ethic. When we got the tax papers back from R12 for 2022 or 2023, I think both years, actually, we saw that they only worked, they specifically with their charity, one hour a week. Um, you know, Harry received a millions of dollar offer from Spotify and Harry's podcast absolutely never came to fruition despite people coming out of the woodworks to help him and having all sorts of Zoom meetings to try to, to conceptualize some cool ideas for him to have a podcast. So I do think that there is a, a lack of work ethic when it comes to Harry and Meghan and it's reflected in, in the way that their star has fallen here in the States. I mean, you know, we work seven days, five to seven days a week here. Yeah. We work, you know, 10 hour days. We have a strong work ethic here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was working, I was horrified to find out that people that had been in jobs for like years and years and years only got one week holiday for the entire rest of the year. And if they were really lucky, they got two. And I was going, well, we come from a country where people have like six weeks holidays. I mean, Harry has about, you know, 50 weeks holiday of the year, doesn't he? Exactly. I know because I love watching your I love watching you guys on TV and sometimes you guys will disappear for weeks at a time and I'm like looking at the obituaries but it turns out you guys are just on a beach. <laughs> Something <laughs> so like I'm that. Very yeah. jealous Something of your like that. Let's talk about the Oscars because that was a big glamour um, event I guess today. Um, Margot Robbie missing out on a nomination but Barbie kind of getting loads and loads and loads. I've only actually seen one of the Oscar nominated movies and that's The Killers of the Flower Moon you might not be surprised to know which I actually quite enjoyed but I had to watch it over two days because it's so long that it, it does it's so long and you know what Leonardo DiCaprio another huge snub from Killers of the Flower Moon so a yeah. lot of people were surprised to see that Barbie did receive eight nominations um, obviously that does not compete with Oppenheimer's 13 uh, but I think that the Greta Gerwig was a missed opportunity uh, Natalie Portman um, she was so good in uh, what is it, May, December? And then a lot of people, and this might shock some viewers, a lot of people surprised that Saltburn didn't receive any nominations. Mm. I'm uh, I'm on the opposite end of that. I'm thanking God that we're not going to continue to to talk about Saltburn because I was 
beyond traumatized after that film. I'm so glad that you said that, you know, because all I haven't watched it. I've been urged to watch it, and I looked at what it was about, looked at the trailer, and I thought, this just looks like absolute tosh. It's manufactured decadence. It's people trying to be cool. It's people going, well, look at me. I'm really, really edgy and, you know, difficult and dangerous and all of this. And you just think, well, a lot of old bollocks, really. It's not anything like that. And all the people whose uh, opinions I actually value don't like it, think it's rubbish. It's the most vulgar thing I've ever seen in my oh. life. I when I when I was done with it, I immediately got on the internet to be like, are other people as appalled as I am? And then you're concerned for society when they're not. So <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> no, I was happy exactly to see right. that that missed the mark. But going back to Barbie, just finally, um, Kinsey, they made an awful lot of money. One point oh, nearly one and a half billion dollars that they took worldwide. Um, that's presumably given the Hollywood movie industry at least the view that it's not all just down to Netflix now. They can actually make films that people will go and pay to see uh, in the movies. Well, I do think that that's why this is so shocking to people that are, you know, to, that watch these these award shows, because Margot Robbie was credited as single handedly keeping the, the movie industry going. The, she actually had people excited about leaving their house, leaving the comfort of their home and all the millions of movies available on their television or their box mm. and sitting in a theater eating popcorn. And, and it became an experience. And so a lot of people were excited saying, wow, she's going to be it for best actress and producer but you know what it's actually emma stone god bless her i'm a fan of emma too but it's emma stone with poor things nominated for best actress and nominated for a producer so that is why a lot of people are shocked about margot robbie because she did so much for the entertainment industry over the last few years and she has really proven her value she's shocked people with how talented she is mm. and uh, ha ha her range and what she's capable of doing behind the scenes as well yeah. Kinsey, as always, great to speak to you. Good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you again soon. Kinsey Schofield there reporting in uh, from Hollywood, the Glitter Dome. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham. Find out next where Elon Musk unbelievably took his three-year-old son to. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Elon Musk decided to do something unusual today. Now, it's not the first time he's done something unusual, as you would imagine, but today he did something quite extraordinary. He decided to go to Auschwitz. And as you're watching now, uh, you can see he's holding his hand with his three-year-old son who came along with him. Um, the panel's here with me, and I'm going to talk to them about this in a moment. He laid a wreath. Um, you can see the snow on the ground. It's an incredibly touching place to go. He met with some community leaders there, it was an EJA delegation to Auschwitz, as you can see. Um, part of the reason for him going was, of course, the anti-Semitism row that he got embroiled in um, a few months ago last year. Uh, he lit some candles. Um, he talked a little bit about how touched he was to be there. But it just seems to me that it was a very strange thing for him to do. And an awful lot of people have now said that it is a very, very weird thing that he did do. And should he have brought his three-year-old son with him? My panel is here, as I say, so I'd like to get uh, their reaction. Uh, and Wolf, Leon Morelli and Ryan Sabe. Um, kind of, a, I mean, we're sort of used to Elon Musk doing strange things, aren't we? But um, this is stranger than anything, isn't it? I just wonder if it was a corporate response to you know what he, what he was accused of before. Yeah, you, you you go to Auschwitz, 
uh, and you're seen very visually to be partaking in the in the sort of lighting yeah. of candles or, or whatever it may may well be. But I just don't think it's a place that it's. I mean, it's such an. an uh, it's not. An a, awful, it's not a tourist attraction. An awful place that it's yeah. not a place that yeah. you go to make a point, is it? Yeah. You called it touching. I call it really quite a chilling place. I just yeah. remember walking around feeling very, very empty and very, very mm. kind of unsettled by it all. Yeah. I absolutely wouldn't take my three-year-old to this place. Yeah. Um, but then I wouldn't call my toddler X, and he's called his toddler X, yeah. his child yeah. X. But, I mean, tourists do do odd things. I know. I mean, some people go yeah, there People and are taking take selfies Instagram there. Selfies. It's, it's yeah. changed from what it really mm. should be, which is a memorial. Yes, but, I mean, Elon Musk isn't just any old, you know, influencer mm. who's gone yeah. to take a picture of themselves at Auschwitz, is he? I mean, you know, he's a very sort of well-known figure and whatever people think of him, they pay a lot of attention to what he does and mm. what he says. Mm. So. I, think, I think it's it's great that he's there in a way because it does... He clearly had some issues with, with what he was liking on Twitter, what he was reacting to on Twitter that may have been perceived yeah. as anti-Semitic. Yeah. But I think the bringing your three-year-old there is where it looks a bit strange and the optics of the kid on his on his shoulder yeah. if he's at Disneyland or right. something. Mm. You have to also, remember. when he was walking, holding his hand, mm. the kid was doing what all three-year-olds do, which was sort of playing about, looking the other way. Yeah. He wasn't really that involved in where they were, mm. clearly. You know. I don't think a three-year-old would have the faintest notion of what is going on there, what, would, no. what had happened there. And, and I, I really hope he didn't take him into, you know, I mean, there are gas chambers there. There's all sorts yeah. that you really, you wouldn't really just not be, appropriate, really. You wouldn't be wanting to have that conversation with your three-year-old, would you? No. You know, what happened here, Daddy? And, you know. Yeah, I think I've got two young girls, age 12 and 9. I think probably then they get start to learn things at school and go, go through the history books that you feel that perhaps then that's about the appropriate age. But yeah. three just seems far, far too young. It does. We've got a lot of stories to get through today. I should ask you if there's any updates on the Simon Clark scenario before we well, go any further. Well, interesting. There seems to be a rearguard action from, from Downing Street uh-huh. um, from this evening in terms of Tory MPs coming out and mm. um, being very, very supportive right. of, uh, of, of Rishi Sunak and attacking Simon Clark's um, article that he's, right. that he's done in the Telegraph this evening. Liam Fox, Pretty Patel... David Davis have all spoken about a, what sort of a selfish act that this is. Oh, really? That's that, that this is not the certainly not the right time to do it. Right. So it seems you know rather silly. It's pretty Patel Char- meant to be part of that movement that Liz Truss is organising. Exactly, so th- they've th- already split. Then have they? I, I think the fact is that <laughs> <laughs> that didn't take long. Started. Yeah. So I, you said six families. Yeah. said Seven it, families now. Seven, there's yeah. even there's even there's even more families you know come to the fore on this. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that. Liam Fox mentions in in one of his quotes that it's pretty miserable in opposition. Yeah. So just, be, you know... They care, def- yeah, I mean, people what, do say that. Yeah. Careful what you wish for. Yeah. You say, oh, we're yeah. going to opposition for a while. No, it's horrendous. Yeah. You can't do anything. You don't get to meet anybody. Nobody cares who you are. Yeah. Nobody, get, nobody asks you to come on TV shows anymore. The, you know, the, the, big fear, existence. Yeah. the big fear would be that they'll be out of power for about a decade. Because well, his, his piece in the Telegraph way. says they will go extinct unless they are soon. And that was what William Hague was saying a couple of months ago now. He was saying, you know, the landscape is changing so much that they may never come back yeah. into power. Mm. And that's not just any old, you know. No. That's William pretty, Hague saying it. It's pretty emotive language from um, Simon Clark. Uh, he talks about a massacre if they don't change leader, extinction of the whole party is a very real possibility. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's not holding back. He thinks things have got so bad that they have to 
you know, I mean, have, to, have to improve. It's hard to disagree with him, to be honest. I mean, there's nothing much to look forward to, is there? I mean, no, there it, isn't. I mean, all eyes on tomorrow is what I would say, because yeah. if we start to get other MPs, and in particular those in cabinet, if yeah. they start agitating or it looks as though there might be some momentum behind mm. Simon Clark, then I think Sunak's potentially got to worry. But it does seem as though they've built this sort of shield around him with those Conservative MPs coming out and defending him. So, you know, I think he is probably going to be the guy that leads him into the election. Mm. It doesn't look pretty. He hasn't got much to go on. I think it will be a massacre or it will be very difficult yeah. for them. But who's the alternative? Simon Clark hasn't put that forward. Is it him? Because I don't think he's going to do much better. I don't think but, he is, no. Let's talk about a few of the other things before we get to the rest of the papers. Civil servants have told business leaders to collect gender pay gap figures based on how workers identify. We touched upon this a little bit last night, but, I mean... Um, this is mad, isn't it? Completely and utterly bonkers. Yeah, and... Uh, it makes that, a mockery of data altogether, doesn't it? Yeah, and Downing Street have told uh, Kemi Badenoch to, to get involved. She's very keen to, to get involved in this and actually make sure that, uh, you know, data is collected on the basis of your biological yeah. sex and rather than the well, one you the identify with. What's the point of doing with? a gender pay gap if you're asking people what gender they are and there's 72 genders? You've been there all day and you won't really get anything worth a fag end, will you? It's just so ludicrous. Isn't it's it? hard not to laugh. But also, I mean, let's just be honest, there aren't going to be that many... Um, well, I suppose, no, actually, if you're reporting on all employees, I was thinking there aren't going to be that many high-earning people that identify as the opposite gender who's, you know, it's not going to skew the figures. But actually, in these big companies, I think it's companies over 250 employees who have yeah. to report. Yeah. Right. So I guess if you are asking all the companies to report all of, the ge- all of their gender, uh, I mean, I, ju- I just don't... I just think that the trans... Um, Population is actually really quite tiny, and we really get is. so blown up about yeah. these about these issues. And I mean, I'm more concerned about it amongst the young because I think we're seeing a real growth. And we, I'm sure you saw the stories yesterday about boarding schools allowing yes. pupils who identify as the opposite gender to, to sleep in dormitories yeah. of the opposite gender. Well, this is which when it starts. It's a recipe for chaos with well, teenagers. I mean, for goodness' sake. Well, that's sake. just how we saw the, the death knell for Nicola Sturgeon, wasn't it? As soon as they started putting a man into a woman's prison, yeah. Suddenly, the theory didn't seem to work in practice. And that was when it all came tumbling down. Same for the schools. Yeah. If you start putting boys into girls' dormitories when they're 16 or 17... I think you'll have half yeah. the parents pulling their children yeah. out of schools. Well, yeah. it, it's the majority bending to the minority again, isn't it? And yes. We can't be in a situation where that happens. And it, This is unnecessary bureaucracy on these businesses. I think yeah. the, the, the gender pay gap in itself, I think, needs, needs to be questioned. Yes. Because I'm not questioning that there isn't disparity between genders in the workplace, but this is such a poor metric for actually measuring right. gender disparity because a lot of women choose not to work or, or reduce their hours after, yes. after children, as do men, but I think it's just a terrible metric and this is just more bureaucracy, let alone now they have to look at trans, the trans... But this is what happened to the councils, it. wasn't it? Because they got embroiled in this gender pay gap problem where they realised that women were being paid less than men genuinely in some jobs. But then they started to change the categories and go, well, maybe a woman's job uh, is different to a man's job, but they should be paid equally even though they're different jobs. And it all got very confused. Mm. And if all the councils have done that, you wonder why so many are about to go bankrupt. Well, exactly, because that's a lot of the reason why they (laughs) haven't got the money, because they suddenly went, oh, God, we've got all this money to catch up and pay uh, in reparations to people. Do you think Jamie Badenoch would have, you know, she she may have to get involved in this, but she's got bigger things to to worry about, trade deals around the world, post office comes under her... Under her remit as well. You know, there's plenty of her, her to be getting on with. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk about the Royal Mail. Saturday letter service um, shouldn't be uh, abolished, according to Downing Street. I mean, again, they'll have the, they'll be worried about their letters coming in in a different way. But as said, <laughs> um, I, I, I understand why some people don't want to do away with it. But, you know, the Royal Mail is in such a bad way. After the post it- office scandal, you know, now they've got, you know, union problems. They've got 
management problems. As if the Saturday issue was a problem. The public can't even rely on reliable or sort of non-random deliveries on five days of the week, let alone whether or not we get anything on a Saturday. The other day I received a Christmas card which was sent genuinely six weeks ago from someone in Surrey. Wow. And that's insane. You cannot put something in the post with a first-class stamp on it. And by the way, first and second-class stamp have gone through the roof. Mm -hmm. You know, what are you paying for? You can't put a a letter in the post and be assured that it will arrive the next day. And if you've got something that needs to not go missing, you end up having to kind of send it registered or you have to pay to get it couriered. And you pay a lot more money, don't you? Because you can't, you just you can't trust them anymore. You can't trust them, but also we have moved to technology. It's much easier for most of us to send an email or yeah. to send a WhatsApp or whatever. So it's both their own fault and also just the fact that we've we've moved on. Yeah, it, it and if you're much... sending or you're getting medicine or something like that, really important stuff like, like it is or, the important or documents stuff. that you can't yeah. lose. Yeah, you yeah. just wouldn't put it in the post. Well, it just feels like a very analog business, doesn't it, Royal Mail? In, yeah, in an increasingly totally. digital world. Totally, I, like I'm the NHS. Sure, like the NHS, but I'm not sure where they're going to go from here, Royal. Mail. I do think the Saturday issue is quite uh, important for publishers. I, I receive some weekly magazines on Saturdays, for example. If they don't do the Saturday, I mean, not always on time. Why could you said. not receive them on a Friday well, or a Monday? Well, I guess they, they could, that's when they publish. So that's, that's when they go on, on yeah. the Saturday. So, so it will be very difficult for the publishing industry. I think Rishi Sunak mentioned that in his in his uh, commentary about why they should stay open on Saturday, why they should deliver. Yeah, but then sort out the other five days. If you're going to focus on Saturdays, I mean, really. And the sad thing is, it is important stuff that still people do get, you know, bills, hospital letters, all of that stuff by letter, and that stuff goes astray. Right. You're screwed. One from uh, today in Parliament, if you like. This is a question by Rachel Maskell from Labour, from York Central. So ask the Secretary of State for Business and Trade whether she has made a recent assessment of the potential merits of bringing the post office under public ownership. Answered by Kevin Hollenrake. Um, post office limited is under public, public ownership. <laughs> so, I mean, there we are. They're going to be in charge soon, Labour Party. The bizarre thing about that is every question those MPs put in costs around £200 a, to really? answer. Unbelievable. Let's let's finish up with Pele. Apparently, there's a woman claiming to be the fo- to be the football legend's daughter, and she wants his body exhumed to give it a DNA test. I think I'm not wants, sure. I don't think she wants his body exhumed. I think she wants money. Well, I, think I don't know if he has any money though. Does uh, and the money? other siblings are going. No, we definitely don't yeah. have an eighth sister. And I mean, I'm I thinking don't get the mm, they don't want to split that sixty percent of whatever they have to. I don't know that he's got a lot of money though. I don't, you know, because latterly he was advertising Viagra and all sorts yeah. of terrible things that he was advertising. That well, he would have got a few quid for that. He would have done, but I mean, presumably he didn't have a lot. I don't think he had a lot of money because I mean, I know lots of footballers now who are in sort of in their sixties mm. who talk about, you know how they completely missed the yeah. boat, you know, when they were playing. They didn't they, invest in property they, or anything well, like no, that. Well, no, they just didn't get the kind of money that you yeah. get now. No, no, no. You, well, know, they, you think his estate would be worth something, because the Pele name, even now, is yeah. worth something, isn't it? You would it? think, but so, who knows? I mean, I don't know what the rules are in, in Brazil about exhuming bodies, but um, it's a bit grim, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the ultimate thing for a footballer used to be to do, to buy a pub when they yeah. retired, because that was about all the money they had. Mm. They'll be buying health bars. Suddenly health bars now they're buying bars. entire chains yeah. of, uh, of gyms and yeah. things. Well, we won't talk about um, Carl Walker. No, I was going to say, um, eight children watching. or 88 children. <laughs> um, we've got loads more stories to look at. So uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, uh, we'll take a trip to the world of woke. And you wouldn't believe what Labour think we should be teaching our kids. Do not go anywhere. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for this. Now, 
Now, this is beginning to turn into the week that the Labour Party gives everyone plenty of reasons not to vote for them. Only yesterday, their leader, Sir Keir Starmer, the snake charmer, unveiled his big plan to accuse the Tories of making up wokists and wokeism just to suit their own agenda. Captain Hindsight decided to go to bat against what he called an imaginary foe. Yes, that's right. People who are just thinking that every public body cares more about diversity and inclusion than actually doing the jobs that they're paid to do. I mean, the NHS isn't woke at all, is it? And the police, heaven forbid, the RNLI, the National Trust, it's all just a figment in the minds of people who want to destroy our communities. That's what Sir Flip-Flop would have you believe. Today I can bring you more madness from those people who want to be the next government. I bring you Shadow Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Thangam Elizabeth Rachel Debonair. She's been talking about white privilege and how important it is to teach children all about it. Her reasoning, like all lefties, is that white people have great lives and therefore white children must learn about all the horrors of the past so that they can say sorry. She wants them to have the opportunity to ask difficult questions sometimes of our nation's history. And she says to do so certainly isn't in any way undermining Britain. She seems to be in favour of a recent Barnardo's Guide to Parents, which encourages people to teach your white friends, family and colleagues about their privilege. This is such errant nonsense that Jonathan Gullis MP says anyone even using the term should be referred to the Home Office's Prevent programme, and I agree with him. But let's take a look at the concept. Is Miss Debonair seriously expecting us to believe that the white sons and daughters of millionaires who glue themselves to things in London on behalf of Just Stop Oil have the same privileges as poor white children like little Bronson Battersby who died of hunger while clinging to his dead father in Skegness? Will the white children who were systematically raped and drugged in Rochdale by Pakistani grooming gangs have the same chances in life as the white children of Labour politicians? Or indeed, any children of any politicians? Clearly not. It's simply another stick with which to beat white people. Let me tell you about the privileged life that Miss Debonair has enjoyed, though. She was born into a family of Indian and Sri Lankan origin in Peterborough. She went to two different private schools before attending Oxford University. She also trained as a cellist at the Royal College of Music before gaining a master's degree from the University of Bristol. She's been an MP since 2015. She was selected from an all-women shortlist. Quite a privilege, you might think, unless you're a man, of course. Lastly, she gets a recently improved MP salary of 86,584 quid a year, and that's not all. Last year, she claimed nearly 60,000 pounds in expenses on top, 22 grand for accommodation, where we pay her monthly rent of 1,635 pounds a month. Nice work if you can get it. You might even call it a privileged position. I don't think Ms Debonair has suffered in life for not being white, do you? That is the world of work. And welcome back now uh, with the panel who are here with me. We're going to look at some other stories from tomorrow's papers. And I guess we, we, we are not surprised to see that all of them are very much leading on the conviction of that terrible, terrible triple killer up in Nottingham. Uh, he's been branded monstrous by the mother of one of the victims, two students who were killed on their way home, Barnaby Webber and Grace O'Malley Kumar, who were just walking home. I remember when the story broke, it was about sort of three o'clock in the morning. They'd been out together at some club or other. This guy just kind of went on some mad rampage and then he also killed a caretaker as well. He's pleaded guilty to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility, but, but not surprisingly, the mother of, of the girl is pretty upset. Yeah, the whole families of I think some some of the family members have been in court, and particularly Emma Weber, who's the whose son Barnaby. Um, if you remember, he was a, a talented cricketer. Yeah. Um, and she actually was in court today. She asked the, the prosecution to move aside, so she could get a clearer view mm. of uh, 
of uh, Valdo um, Calocaine, who's, uh, who's 32, who, uh, who pleaded guilty today. And these, these emotive words, Barney didn't lose his life on the 13th of June. It was stolen from him in the most vicious, unprovoked and senseless and evil way imaginable. It's, you know, can you imagine you know, just doing, that, doing that in court, yeah. having him standing there? It takes, takes some bravery. Mm. It really does, because so many parents see their children going off to university and, uh, you know, you just hope that everything's going to be fine. And mm. for something like that to happen, it's just so random and awful. And it, and it seems so unnecessary. This man was known, you mm. know, he, he'd been in and out of mental hospitals. Right. He was, an, uh, there was an arrest warrant was out for him, for, a warrant was out for his arrest when he took part in this mm. killing, when he, you know, embarked on this killing yeah. spree. Um, he'd kind of reported himself. He'd said that I'm not well and, yeah. you know, all of this. And so it just seems utterly preventable. Yeah. It didn't come out of the blue. Yeah, exactly right. And the mail says that, doesn't they? Yeah, the, the line in the God's mail. God's name. Why wasn't he stopped? Mm. I think, you know, section four times under the Mental Health Act, um, just incredible. Really. We need to ask questions of, of the NHS on this because why was he allowed to slip through the net? If mm. they knew that, if he had turned himself in, yeah. clearly he was dangerous mm. uh, and, and his condition, uh, you know, of course, he's not, not acting with, with rational thought, but the NHS and those who are protecting yeah. him should have been able to But it's just up. another part of the system that doesn't work, isn't it? Mm. Because there's probably a lot of people in that situation. I mean, I've heard stories of people who have asked to be sectioned and they, they simply haven't got the capacity to do it. Mm. Or, you know, young people who have asked for help because they know that they've got mental problems and, and there's nobody to see them. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's the joined up thinking. Here you had the NHS, the police, yeah. um, university officials, and even his employer missed, it says here, eight chances mm. to stop him in his, in his tracks. Yeah. Incredible. Got, yeah. Mirror's got a story about British gas saying £800 million profits. Is that why our bills were so high? Uh, and they've got a picture of that rather um, splendid looking moustache that the. Uh, <laughs> The boss of British Gas has. He was on British. Uh, he was on BBC, I think, the other day, saying, "I can't justify my salary." He gets four and a half million a year, um, but they're going to reveal profits of more than eight hundred million pounds for last year, and uh, they've benefited apparently from Ofgem allowing them to claw back money through higher bills. This is going to really upset a lot of people who yeah. have had to pay triple, sometimes quadruple bills because of supposedly the war in Ukraine. And British Gas are walking off with all the money. It's shocking. And uh, Simon Francis of the End Fuel Poverty Coalition is saying these outrageous profits will come as a kick in the teeth to yeah. households who spent the best part of a week shivering in cold homes. Last week we saw, last winter we saw 5,000 excess winter deaths caused by people living in yeah. cold homes, people turning off their heating because they just can't afford the bills. Yeah. And also, I mean, we were subsidising everybody's bills. You know, Rishi Sunak kept saying, oh, but we're giving people help, but it's our money he's giving us back to pay these bills. I know there was windfall taxes going on as well, but nevertheless, you know, effectively we're bankrolling these very high uh, and very expensive bills so that these guys can make 800 million pounds of profit. I don't, I don't have a problem with them making profit. You know, I think that's... that's well, yeah, that's but not if, right. we're pub, not if we're subsidising That's the, That's the big issue, is that we are putting taxpayers' money into sub subsidising those bills. And if you're making £800 million in profit, why on earth is the government saying that they are the, are the source of our taxpayers' yeah. money to bail them out when there are clearly public services that are perhaps more deserving well, right. of, that, of that money? And I think... For this guy, I mean, he came out and said he can't justify his four and a half million pound salary, which I thought was quite an interesting way of answering that question. Yeah. But when he's on that amount of money and you're a taxpayer, so you're a bill payer, as you say, cold in your home, not wanting to turn the heating on because you can't afford the bill, and here's this guy earning four and a half million quid a year, right. 
Well, I think you have to ask questions as to whether that's fair or not, whether the government should be effectively paying for some of that. Well, uh, exactly right. Because we're always told when the oil companies make a profit, oh, because it's something else, it's another but, part of the business where they yeah. make the money. I don't know whether that's the case with British Gas. But it certainly shouldn't have been possible for them to make this kind of money when they keep complaining that, oh, we have to keep the prices up because it's costing us a lot more to get the gas out of the ground. Part of their response every time is that they always use the money to invest in new te yeah. technologies, green energy, or, or what have you. So you hope that... But some, they will use four and a half minutes of it to pay the chief pay exec. him, yeah. Well, you know, we shall see. Um, interesting one on the front of the Telegraph. Um, in case there's a war, uh, we're all going to be called up, apparently, according <laughs> to Chief of the Army General Sir Patrick Sanders. says so he's going to make a speech in which he's going to stress the need for the government to mobilise the nation in the event of a conflict with Russia. Are you up for that? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, sign me up. I'll be, you know, I, mean... <laughs> I think we should all find very good reasons why we absolutely can't serve. I mean, is there anything to fight for left in this country? It's not as though we're well, all feeling utterly united and, mm. you know... Um, but no. these army chiefs don't say these things lightly. No. They, they come out and they make it for good reason. And he talks about how he wants to mobilise the nation and you know, find more people if yeah. it comes to war. Well, I'm the head of the army. I know. It's, not, it's not some junior No, exactly. Rank. And also, you, you know, I, I, I say the words in the event of a conflict with Russia. I mean, that's quite a serious statement to make, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and there was—I think there was um, one of the sort of army or military types the other day. So there's a there's a pretty good chance of us being at, at war with Russia in some guise um, in the next sort of twenty years yeah. or so. Yeah. We haven't actually mentioned it tonight, but one of the stories that we didn't do is that NATO, um, um, I think, have accepted Sweden or Turkey has accepted yeah. Sweden's wish to join NATO, which will presumably upset the Russians even more mm. because they didn't fancy the idea of Sweden and, fin and Finland joining NATO. Yeah. But, I mean, according to this, NATO has apparently said they want men and women to be prepared for a call-up if NATO goes to war with Moscow. So it wouldn't even necessarily be Britain. It's unbelievable. NATO. What's the age range? Well, I think I'm out of it, but I mean, I've got kids who wouldn't be out of it. You know, <laughs> so I think how young are they what? taking them? Yeah. Well, I think I'd be in it, and I don't. I have to say, I don't. You know, I think we take it for granted, actually, that we wouldn't go to war. But ultimately, we have got an issue with numbers in the army. We are at probably the most uh, fragile state in geopolitics. We're definitely at DEFCON 5, aren't we? Certainly since I can remember. There, there's, Look there's, how easy it is to get out of jury service. I, I don't it's think anyone would be up for this. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's worrying. And, and I think you know, Grant Shapps has come out and said that we are going to invest in the army and get more people, uh, actually troops, trained troops in there. Oh, great. I wouldn't be much good in the army. Grant Shapps is the gun, recruitment charge. Gun, you know. be much good. Don't see it. You can't see the snowflakes going to war. No. Well, I mean, everything else has happened. I mean, it's anything that people haven't seen, so maybe it will. But listen, great to see you all. Thank you very much indeed. That's all uh, from us tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you uh, to all my guests. I'll see you tomorrow at 9pm, only on Talk TV, of course. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.